0: From the
1: Social Justice Classroom inside Hugh Boyd Secondary, this is Voices. A youth-created podcast driven by a steadfast commitment to improving the world around us.
2: Guy Felicella is an addiction educator and harm reduction advocate as well as a peer clinical advisor for the BC Centre on Substance Abuse, Vancouver Coastal Health Regional Addiction Program, and the Provincial Overdose Emergency Response Centre. He spent 30 years in a vicious cycle of addiction and 20 years living in the two-block radius in the downtown east
1: side. Guy has appeared on CTV Vancouver, two TED Talks, and the Today Show on NBC to talk about his extremely difficult journey and brings awareness to treating mental health, homelessness, addictions, and harm reduction as social welfare and health issues. So, can you just tell us a little bit about your life and your experiences with uh, facing homelessness?
3: Uh yeah, for sure. I mean, um, what's uh, what's interesting is I grew up like basically two or three blocks away from where you guys are at
1: school now. Oh wow! And, yeah, so I grew up on Railway and Williams. I actually went to Boyd too. So. Oh my! Wow! <laughs> oh wow!
3: <laughs> yeah, I didn't last long, let's just say that, but. yeah, so, I mean, I had, uh, I had struggles with my, you know, there's a lot of challenges in my own life, um, mm-hmm. in Richmond, um, you know, my, my mom drank a lot of alcohol, my dad wasn't, uh, wasn't really around, and, um, and so for me, it was, uh, you know, I, I can describe it as, you know, your parents can be there physically, but emotionally there was, you know, this, they were void, um, you know, we weren't, didn't really have or develop or learn how to cope with, you know, emotions. It was o- obviously for us, it was something that we tried to, you know, not show. And, you know, for me, it developed uh, into anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And and you know my struggles in school were the same. I was always called uh, hyper difficult and hard to manage. Um, but it wasn't until uh, my late thirties that I was diagnosed with learning disabilities. And so when I went to school, I was usually the guy that was you know sent to the office or put in a cubicle, um, and it was or I was compared to to you know, how come you can't learn like everybody else and what's wrong with you? And I honestly, yeah. I, I didn't even know what to say to that. And sadly, like that kind of developed my negative self image of myself. And plus what was going on in my home life. Um, yeah. and so I realized that at a very early age that, uh, you know, my parents weren't really going to change or do anything to help me. And so I started running away and <clears throat> by the time I was, um, 12 years old, so while I was at, actually, before I was even at U Boid, I started using street drugs.
0: Wow.
1: So, what inspired you to speak about your experiences and struggles?
3: What inspired me the most is that I see a lot of people struggling with the same circumstances that I was struggling with, whether you're 12 or 20 or 30 or 60. Um, And, you know, feeling isolated and feeling the shame and the stigma and discrimination that goes with that. And so, um, you know, it was about nine years ago that I decided that uh, I was not going to um, remain silent about my struggles, that I was going to talk about it in a way that would uh, at least, um, you know, let people know that, hey, like somebody's gone through what you're going through. I know how tough it is, but... um, you know, I'm here to help you and, you know, really for me, it's about speaking up about it. It's is really just so that um, I don't want somebody to go through what I went through. And if I can make a difference in one person's life that way, um, then, then that's why I'll keep talking about it.
2: That's great. Um, do you think that the stigma around it now is less severe than it was, for example, when you were suffering from it? Like, are people more generally accepting of the struggles now and willing to talk about it without shame? That's a really good question. Yeah. You know, I think we have gotten gotten better. I mean, there's a lot more people, there's a lot more awareness that it exists
3: now. Has it changed to the point where it's, it's better? No. Um, just because of the amount of people who are, you know, still dying alone uh, from overdose, you know, um, using alone, if you look at the percentage of people who do die in our province, uh, you know, seven, six people will die today. Um, And
0: 79% of the people who have died of a drug overdose in 2020 are males and I often say you know why it's males because males don't talk about stuff yeah yeah we we just hold it in and makes everybody think that we're doing okay when we're not and that's so dangerous for us and I think
3: you know what's great is is that, yeah, there is there is a lot more awareness about it, but has it really changed the impact? Um, you know, to some extent, I think it's gotten worse just because the drugs have gotten worse, which means yeah. people view it a lot differently. And a lot of the issues that we see in our society with homeless people is we often assume they're substance users. Which is not the case. There's a lot of people who are struggling with homelessness that have jobs, live in cars, or have to access the food bank because there's not enough food in their coverage to feed their kids. So, you know, solving or these are two separate issues. One is we have an
1: unaddressed poverty issue in our society which or a housing issue so that people can have affordable housing. And on the other mm-hmm. side is uh, is a poison drug supply issue. So they're two mm-hmm. separate issues, but we often combine them mm-hmm. into one, which makes it a recipe for disaster for people who are struggling. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly.
2: Um, as far as homelessness in the downtown east side is, so you were living there from 1993 to
3: 2013, was it? Yes, that's correct.
2: So do you think that homelessness today has... Um, on the scale would have like improved or gotten worse um, from today now?
3: Yeah, it's gotten way worse. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's a lot of issues with that too, is why it's gotten so worse. Obviously housing unaffordability, affordability, the cost of food, everything else in our province has gone up. But I also think what happens in, in the downtown east side is that you know, people are pushed from their communities, whether it's Richmond or Langley or Surrey or Vernon or across the province yep. uh, towards the downtown east side because that's where all the services are. And unfortunately, if you look at a town like Richmond, there's that stigma there because there's only a couple services there yeah, to support. Exactly, so yeah. the majority of them will go to the downtown east side for more support. And then once you're in there, you can become viciously trapped in a cycle where you can never get out of. And that's the tragedy is that not all communities that we live in, especially Richmond. I know I was pushed out of Richmond. So, you know, that still goes on in our, our societies. And until communities actually do their part, all of us collectively in our communities do our parts to address those issues. Um, You know, you're going to continue to see the downtown east side continually get worse. And, you know, until we give housing to people instead of, you know, putting them in prison or, you know, trying to tell them that they need to get off drugs. You know, I think a housing first model can work with proper supports that support people who are using substances and, you know, we just haven't got there to the extent of
1: what we're involved in today. Yeah. Yeah. So you've kind of already answered this question for us, but how well of a job do you think the federal and provincial governments are doing with the increase in homelessness and the opioid crisis?
3: Yeah, no, it's an epic fail. I mean, you know, obviously homelessness is getting worse and worse and worse. People are, you know, people that are working their jobs are one paycheck away from homelessness. Um, and with the uh, illicit drug supply, just to educate you guys, it's not um, an opiate crisis; it's an overdose crisis, um, because uh, it's it's the poisoning crisis that's killing people. It's not like people aren't dying from taking prescription drugs; they're dying from buying illicit drugs. Yeah. And so, um, so when you talk about it being an opioid crisis, because people, some people are on opiate agonist therapies and other, uh, other programs to address the illicit drug supply, but that's not killing them. What's killing people is the poison drug supply. So, um, you know, it's just a little something that I always like to let people know. It's really a. It's really a toxic drug supply out there
0: that's killing people, and it's not so much the – it's not at all, and the data supports it, that it's prescription drugs, so. For sure.
1: Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. So what are, like, some main ways that the government can improve? What are, like, the main things you want the government to help with this issue? Well, I think you could use – with with homelessness, It's you know, it's not really rocket science. It's, like, develop uh, – Develop housing that people can access, and you know uh, whether they're on income assistance, that's contingent
3: to their income, so that they can pay what they need or how much it would cost. Basically, like a co-op model, it's really based on how much you make or um, yeah. Yeah. that your rent will cost. And then with the illicit drug supply, I think you know you hear a lot of things in the news, and I, I you know I want to clear it up with you guys. When you hear that there is being safer supply prescribed to people, it's it's not as, as true as it's said. It, in some circumstances, um, yes, it does exist. But if you go into communities in
0: Northern Health, which has got the highest rate of overdose in the province mm-hmm. per capita of 100,000 people. so But when you go out there, the lack of that access means that people aren't getting it there. And so what the federal and provincial governments need to do is they need to create two
3: versions of what a safer supply would be. One, which would be a medicalized approach for people who need to go see a doctor. And then one would be a pathway outside of that, like, um, kind of like what they've done with cannabis, where people could go in and, um, and and purchase their their substances that way. So you'd have two models, a medical model and um, a non-medical model. And if if you, the people who are using drugs, so when you, It's not all just the downtown east side. Most people aren't dying down there. Like, you know, 84% of people who do die of a drug overdose in our province die alone, but almost 60% are dying in private residences. So that's a house like yours or where your parents grew up. Um, And a lot of it is impacted the trades industry. So these are people with jobs. So we often, when we hear it, we often hear of drug overdoses. Our mind gravitates to people who are homeless or the downtown east side. That's just not the case. More people are dying in, you know, dying in every community, really. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, we have to really kind of. And if you're not diagnosed with a substance use disorder, you cannot access a medical
2: supply either. And so that is showing, you know, that the only choice for people who are using substances is. is to buy them off the street. So when you were in this vicious cycle of um, addiction, did you ever think that you would be getting out when you did?
3: Did I ever think I would get out? You know, it's interesting. I always had a desire that I I wanted to do something else. I just didn't know why I was so stuck for so long. And it wasn't until that um, you know I had a I had a really good. Um, doctor uh, in the 2000s, Gabor Maté was my doctor and he basically, you know, um, brought a lot of awareness of why I was using drugs, obviously my learning disabilities, the trauma that was impacted in my life. And um, once I started putting, understanding that, you know, drugs were a reasonable response because society wasn't helping me. Um, or you know everybody kept saying he's got to get off the drugs and I I did get off the drugs lots of times but my my life never got better it got worse because of you know uh, my not just dealing with the underlying issues of trauma and pain and once I was made aware of why I was using drugs the way I was um, it became really clear it was almost like putting pieces of the puzzle together where it started to make sense and you know my last overdose, which is February 18th, 2013 um, when I woke up from the from being out for about seven minutes, it took me about 10 minutes to actually gather my, just kind of lift my head off off the ground and, and the nurse was crying uh, to the left of me and I just asked her, why are you crying? And she said, uh, because I care. And uh, I just, I don't know what happened at that, that moment, but. I just I just knew then that I was either going to die in my addiction or I was going to die trying to get out. And, wow. you know, it was a month. It was a month later that uh, I left the downtown east side of Vancouver with one set of clothes on my back and a welfare check, and I had nothing. And I went to uh, to a recovery house out in Surrey in an outpatient program for a year, and I just started to rebuild my life from there. It turned out good.
1: Wow. So like what suggestions do you have people who are currently in a situation similar to what yours was like?
3: Yeah, definitely well you're not alone um, and you know what like reach out to somebody it's gotta just be somebody you can talk to like the, the best advice I have for anybody is just like you know you know reach out and and just talk about how you feel it's okay like you know like. There's gotta be we can find one person if we can find that one person to just open up to um, it can it can really help because you know w- what happens with trauma is that a lot of us hold it in and you can only your body can only absorb so much trauma and then it has to come out yeah it either comes out willingly with you doing the work
0: or it comes out negatively in our lives and so you know holding that stuff in just does it just keeps us in a bad spot and so um, you know And 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 that's the most important thing. And so, you know, for you guys doing this podcast and stuff like that, hopefully, you know, because I'll tell you something. If you think,
3: you know, you don't have youth struggling with anxiety and social acceptance and substance use and all the other issues in our society yeah. I was a youth too, man. I struggled with all that stuff, and and I can guarantee you that there's there's people in your school struggling with it right now and not talking about it. And so, and it's because that they they feel that they'll be judged for it. And so. Yeah. um yeah but um you know maybe with your maybe with this podcast that it'll help people have the ability to reach out to even you guys to start the conversation
1: right hopefully yeah yeah so what are ways that the public can help people who are not currently struggling with these issues just like the average person
3: well you know when you see a homeless guy say hi everybody ever thought like what a concept you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just the little things. Like, yeah. It's not, it's, it, it, it's not, <clears throat> it's not much, right?
3: Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not hard to go to the guy that you see somewhere when you walk by and say hi. Hey, I see, you know, acknowledgement that you see somebody. If they're staring at you and you're staring at them, say hi. Don't put your head to the ground and keep walking by like they're, you know, some bacteria. They're it's a human being, you know, or even go, go even further sometimes. Not to do this all the time, but, <clears throat> you know, buy coffee
1: yeah so what response do you have to people who are like against for example if they see a homeless person in the street and if they are asking for money and they don't give money because they think they're going to use it for drugs what is your perspective on that
3: it's a really good question it comes up often in my uh in my line listen when you give right do you give because you're just giving or do you give with expectation because if you're giving with an expectation is it really giving you know Honestly, I think, you know, uh, when I give to people, I give just because I want want to do something nice. And and guess what? Especially for um, some participants, a lot of it is involved with the survival sex trade work. And so even if you did give somebody 10 bucks and they did go spend it on drugs, at least they didn't have to go do some survival sex trait work just to just to continue. Yeah. Yeah. And so remember that there's, there's many reasons, you know, and anybody that does struggle like that on the street, I can guarantee you that they, they have struggled with trauma and abuse. And they were once children that were abused. And so when you give, you're just giving to be kind. And if somebody does spend it on drugs, I mean, who cares? If somebody
1: does go to McDonald's, doesn't matter. They can manage their own money too, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. Do you think that um, most British Columbians understand the severity of this issue or are a lot of them still keeping up like an ignorant attitude such as like, oh, if they're homeless, they deserve it or think there's just simple solutions like just stop doing drugs without thinking of all the background behind it?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, 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 agree. I think that society has this, you know, view, it's like, uh, they they chose to be there or, you know, I never grew up wanting to be homeless in the downtown east side. And I tell you, I never grew up wanting to be addicted to drugs either. Um, you know, and nobody else does either. And, you know, I think in our society we need to exercise more compassion and understanding and, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, Obviously, you know, a lot of people that are homeless too have flee sexual abuse, physical abuse, you know, and
0: they're hiding um, from, from people that they're predators. Yeah. So yeah. when you actually think about it as well, like you just, you know, you don't know the story.
3: And if you've never walked a mile in somebody's shoes, don't point fingers at them because um, it's not helping.
1: So, uh, do you believe safe injection sites are a viable option to help our overdose crisis here in BC?
3: Uh, Without a doubt, 100%. If you actually think about the context of it, nobody's ever died in a sanctioned, supervised consumption site ever Mm -hmm. worldwide. And also, too, I mean, I was brought back to life multiple times at at them. And so, when you actually think about it, if it didn't exist, I wouldn't exist. My recovery wouldn't exist. My kids wouldn't exist you know, the life I have today wouldn't exist because of that facility. And because, you know, harm reduction kept me alive uh, and gave me the ability to find my path. And So, yes, I think it's a viable option.
2: So if pe- more people were educated on that, do you think that they would change their minds and stop looking down on things like those? Yeah, you know, it's a good question, too. I think, you know, what people have often
3: heard you know, or it's been passed on from generation to generation, how we view people who use drugs or drugs that are bad because they're illegal. Um, But, you know, I don't blame people for how they think. I blame people for not educating them on the the racist drug policies that are in place. And actually, in the 1800s, um, there was, uh, you know, opium in the province of British Columbia. was like alcohol. You could purchase it, buy it, use it, smoke it, drink it, which is heroin. And um, you, in, it's called the Opium Act, and I'm not sure if you guys are aware of it, but you should look it up. And it's built on uh, Chinese settlers that came here
0: trying to make a life in Canada, and they were stigmatized and discriminated against by white
3: people in this province. And what happened was is that um, they, white people were fearful that um, Chinese settlers were going to take their jobs, and so they rioted in Destroyed Chinatown and Powell Street riots. And then they banned opium, a smokable opium that Chinese people used, and left the drinkable opiate, opium that white people used. And so any Chinese uh, individual that smoked opium was now getting arrested and thrown in jail. And so if you actually look at the, the data, it supports uh, what our policies support is strictly racism, not under health concerns. And so if this is a health issue, we need to stop. Um, Treating it like a criminal issue.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Do you think a lot of that racism is still kind of existing in people's mind towards this issue today? One hundred percent. Yeah, Indigenous people of color are extremely impacted um, by those policies too. So,
3: um, you know, we got a lot of work to do. The systemic racism runs in our society. Um, and it's just been passed on from generation to generation. and We have to be the ones to, to do the work, to stop passing on these, these generational curses.
2: Yeah, uh, compared to the rest of the world, um, would you say that BC is more progressive or like way behind the standard for dealing with this issue?
3: Yeah, BC likes to pride itself on being the best in Canada, which is not really a good thing, but if you compare it to worldwide, no. Uh, we're not meeting the standards. Uh, if you look at Portugal with uh, the strict criminalization which treats it as a health issue and then if you also look in Switzerland, which Switzerland had the same issues that the downtown East side had in the 90s and uh, what they first did is they came with extreme law enforcement and then the, the problem tripled and so what they did after that was they just they gave people heroin and so they still do it today and this happened in the 90s, and guess what, the people that access their heroin every day, crime rate went down, HIV went, uh, is non-existent, uh, home thefts went down, court appearances are non-existent, people get their medications basically or their substances each day, and they have jobs and housing, and they are part of, uh, of the community. We have to learn how to coexist with people. And guess what, you know, we take one instance that happens with, you know, public safety or somebody does something because they have a mental health condition and then everybody piles onto it by thinking it's, um. you know, this is happening all the time. But it's, you know, sometimes those isolated incidents is, do happen, but it's not, uh, it's not, it's not the norm.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So how do you think uh, BC can kind of take these formats from Portugal and Switzerland and other European countries and, kind of take it and make it work for our government system and our people.
3: Like what the Portugal and Switzerland's doing, you
1: mean? Yeah, like, so can how, can, how can we adapt it to, because there are different, like, demographics here in, like, Canada as we're more diverse and we have a larger population. It uh, So how do you think we can change And but still use some of their ideals but adapt them to fit our standards?
3: Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, I think you could incorporate a bunch of things from what's been working in other countries, such as Portugal. I do know that we have decriminalization that's coming here this January. It goes into effect. Mm -hmm. However, what it won't do is it won't address the illicit drug supply. So now you'll have people that can carry uh, 2.5 grams of drugs on them. And if um, but that doesn't change the fact that. the the drug supply is still where it's at. So what we need to do is really combine uh, decriminalization with uh, safer supply programs that people can access daily, pick up their substances, similar to what Switzerland's doing, and then, then, you know, do the data and research to see how that works.
2: Do you think that this could be achievable, like, in how long, like within two decades, three uh, century, or will we ever really get to a point where it's not a crisis anymore?
3: Yes, you know, one day I will promise you this, and I don't know, might happen sooner than later, that, you know, one government will get into power and think about how many people have died, you know, over 20,000 people have died since 2016, which is
0: unbelievable. Um, You know, we used to have roughly about 200 to 215 people die a year. Now we're over 2,000 a year, and I think... I think governments
3: are going to look back and say, what were you guys thinking? How could you let so many people die? You know, an alarming amount of youth are starting to to come to the the toxic drug supply as well. You know, you just don't know. And when you don't know or you think it's something um, or when you think it's something that you're purchasing that it's not, that's poison. That's somebody poisoning you. That's not somebody giving you something. If you go buy Ecstasy or Molly on the street and, and it's you think it's that, but it's not, that's not an overdose.
1: That's a poisoning. Yeah. yeah. Do, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you kind of brought up uh, teenagers who are uh, experiencing drug abuse and stuff like this. How do you think we as fellow peers, of these people who might be experiencing this, can help? yeah so you peers would be the most viable option because you guys are
3: with each other right and so you guys know each other and so you guys become more relatable than you know sometimes counselors at your school however you have to have kind of that open door policy where you're talking about it you know I wasn't the social substance teacher I was the wasted you know I used a little I used a lot and um And for me, you know, for you guys, one of the things you can do is talk about it. You know, maybe create like a coffee and a conversation at your school about substance use. Learn more. You know, you're doing a podcast now, but make it more accessible to people. It's like, talk about like, you know, what we are struggling with. Because every one of us is struggling with some. Listen, we're good at a lot of things, but there's something I'm not good at and you're not good at. And so we lack some sort of self-esteem on some issues. So we have to learn, right? And so we can learn together and we can change the narrative. And, you know, the school needs to do more. Um, the The school should be, the school should have a class on prohibition and substance use policy. You know, in social studies, where you're looking at Viking treasure being sunken. Let's talk about today's policies. Let's talk about reconciliation with indigenous people. Let's talk about prohibition and where it started from. Let's talk about how the public health emergency is continually getting worse every day. Let's talk about
0: it. And if we do that,
3: and if you guys ever tell your principal there, I'll come to your school and speak too. I've already been there once to speak for the alternative programs a couple of years ago, so happy to come back.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely agree because I think that our school, like, while they always do have those, like, papers in the hall saying, like, oh, if you need help, call this number, but I feel like it's not as open enough. Like, we've had many presentations about um, mental health and sexual exploitation, but I think not enough attention on drugs.
3: Absolutely not. Schools blame on the parents for not educating you guys. Parents blame it on the school for not doing it. Let's, let's just stop blaming each other and let's start talking about it. It doesn't mean because we talk about things that people are going to actually go do it. it it's, it's like education and awareness. It helps people, right? It brings the conversation out in the open instead of having it isolated in the backwoods where somebody goes and vapes and smokes by themselves because they can't be seen by the school. You know, we want to talk about stigma. It's the stigma that you walk right into a high school league. It's created by a culture that exists there that you know back in the day they they wouldn't even put condoms in the bathroom because they thought you know youth would have sex and I'm just like well they're already having sex or they're already using drugs so it's like why are we just
1: talking about it so it's kind of like one of those things that we have to do do you have any questions for us yeah I do actually um, what made you guys want to do this podcast we were really inspired to do the homeless issue as it is a one of the biggest problems we face here in British Columbia. So we just wanted to really put like shine the spotlight on that and like talk about this and like destigmatize it as well.
2: Yeah, and it can hit really close to home because while it is a global issue, it also happens like local here every day, and some people just don't know about it. Yeah, that's that's good, and so. Uh... Do you guys know um, people in your school who use substances? Not in our school. Um, I I believe there are, but yeah. I don't think it's really brought up in yeah. conversations.
1: Yeah, it's not as like open as a conversation because of like obviously the stigmatization and like the worry that they might get in trouble if they talk about this. But I would say we're aware that there are people who are struggling with these issues, like as you brought up before, like anxiety, depression, learning disabilities. You know hard home lives and also we're like aware of this because of um our program for uh like struggling students who are just trying to graduate so that's a that's um how we also know about this kind of culture in our school and how it's very much here and we can't just silence it
3: well that's you know what it's actually um made my day to actually talk to you know two 16-year-olds that are trying to push the conversation and awareness and, um, and you know, bring light to a, a subject that's often hidden in the darkness. And so, good for you. It's actually been the, the highlight of my uh, morning so far, probably the highlight of my day.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
3: Hey, and never let anybody ever tell you guys that you can't do something. That's one thing I, I want to make clear. One of the things that i've often remembered is that you know people often say that oh you you're not gonna you know that's gonna be really hard it's like you know what never give up on what you believe in doing don't let somebody influence um your decision making you have to be in control and have vision of what you want your life to look like and in regards to helping somebody I've often said this, that it's never just you and them. It's you, them, and every bad experience that they've ever gone through when they're opening up to you. And so um, have that uh, understanding and awareness when somebody is reaching out to you because uh, I will tell you this, if it already hasn't happened, is um, somebody is going
0: to reach out to you guys for help and support one day. And So glad to um, chat with you guys and to... Have a fantastic day. Thank you so much, Guy. It was an honor speaking with you.